If our schools aren't preparing kids for this precarious economy, where do they go to learn the things that they need to know in order to navigate that world? Welcome to the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, co-founder of the Modern Learners Community and Change School, as well as an author, speaker, leadership coach, and parent of two amazing kids. Every week I talk to leading educational thinkers and doers, and we do a deep dive into some of the challenges and opportunities that face educators today. And I offer some practical steps for what you can do right now to make sure your students thrive in the complex, fast-changing future they'll live in. So this is our third podcast on the theme of power. And when you think about both the good and bad aspects of technology and the internet and social media over the last decade or so, it's hard not to conclude that like it or not, the individual has much more power in her hands today than ever before. We have unprecedented power to connect, to communicate, to create, and to publish. And the reality is that many of our young adults and even younger children are beginning to take advantage of that in powerful ways for both good and bad. Look no further than the ways in which students at Stoneman Douglas have used technology to create a movement around gun control, or how Greta Thunberg has amassed millions of followers from around the world to take on climate change. There's no question that the potential of these technologies to empower every one of us to make change happen in the world is kind of amazing right now. And that potential is an important context for the work we do in schools, right? It begs all sorts of questions about our responsibilities as educators in this moment in terms of how we should be preparing kids to use their newfound power well or about the literacies that we ourselves have to exhibit to help students understand these opportunities at a deep level or even about the stories that we tell students about what a successful path forward looks like today. All of which is why I reached out to Dr. Craig Watkins to be my guest in this week's podcast. Craig is a professor of journalism at the University of Texas in Austin, and he's the author of five books that explore young people's engagement with media and technology. He works with the Connected Learning Research Network, and he's the founding director of the Institute for Media Innovation in the Moody College of Communications. And in this conversation, we cover the changing nature of power in the world, how technologies are impacting the way we learn and interact, and how the concept of work is quickly changing, and much, much more. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But real fast, before we get to that conversation, I want to remind you once again that I'll be co-leading five new Modern Learners Labs up and down the East Coast in November, December, and January. And the best part is I'll be doing it with two really special educators, my friends Gary Steger and Homa Tavanger. These events are going to challenge you, they're going to inspire you, and I just think they're great opportunities to do professional learning for yourself, but also get connected to a global PLC of others who are grappling with the most important topics in education today. So if you're at all interested in doing that, head on over to modernlearners.com labs to see what we're up to and think about joining us, and I promise you, you'll find a time and money well spent. Finally, as always, at the end of my conversation with Craig today, I'll be back with three things that you can do right now to think more deeply about your practice in the context of how power is shifting in the world today. And don't forget, if you like what you hear, please head on over to iTunes, give us some love with a review and a rating, and I hope that you'll continue the conversation around story with us in our Modern Learners community, which you can join at modernlearners.community. Cheers, everyone, and thanks so much for listening.
So one of the things that I read, one quote that you had that I found really interesting in the context of this theme of power, you say, the power dynamics are changing. The defining feature of this young generation is they see themselves as not just consumers, but creators and producers of content. And that's pivotal and opens up opportunities for breakthroughs. So I'm just wondering if you could unpack that a little bit and talk about what is different right now? I mean, what is it that these technologies allow for us, not just millennials, but for all of us to do? And how is that changing the power dynamic compared to the way that um, that may have played out in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably one of the defining uh, features of the, the current media environment. And this has been sort of in development for at least a decade or so, if not, well, longer actually. And that is the idea that the, um, that the means to producing uh, content, media content, knowledge, images, video representations, that that's becoming um, much more distributed and, and, and democratized than ever before. And I think young people have gravitated to the technology for a lot of reasons. But one of the main reasons that they gravitate towards the technology is that it empowers them to be able to tell stories, to create content, in ways that give them a sense of agency and in, in, and in some regards, a degree or modicum of control over the information environment around them. And then, of course, the big question is what kind of content are they producing? What are the implications of that content? But what it does, right, primarily if, is that it creates a, a new set of conditions and it really does shift the power dynamics in terms of who gets to speak, who, get, who gets recognized, uh, and how the technology today allows for that to happen. So, you know, I remember one of the earliest examples of this was the Arab Spring, which everyone saw as a way of using social technologies to connect and to organize and to create a movement. And there have been other instances of that. You write about Ferguson, obviously, in your book. And there have been, you know, a lot of instances where these types of technologies and people's ability to use those technologies have made some really powerful impacts in the world. I think you could make the argument that Greta Thunberg, you know, with the climate change protests that are going on right now is an example of that as well. Are there downsides to this if we're not preparing kids for that type of power, that type of ability? Or... Or do you think they're doing okay without us? Because my sense of it is, is that in schools, we, we don't do a great job of preparing kids to do these types of things with the technologies. And I'm just wondering what your sense of that is. Yeah, so it's, it, it's absolutely incumbent upon our schools and um, other adult authority figures who are charged with the mission of helping kids develop in the variety of ways that we want to see them develop academically, socially, civically, personally. Um, and so, yes, um, it's not enough just to sort of leave, quote unquote, leave the kids alone and think that they'll be all right. To the extent that our institutions um, have a responsibility to help young people sort of cultivate the skills of, for tomorrow, what I like to call uh, the skills of future readiness, right? And that is, We've oftentimes focused primarily on, on trying to equip students with skills that we think will get them a job today. Uh, and increasingly, right, that's becoming just ineffective and, and sort of um, outdated in, in today's world. And so I, I sort of promote this notion of future readiness. And part of future readiness, right, is being able to use technology in creative ways, inventive ways, communicating, uh, telling stories, sort of establishing your voice and being able to make arguments, uh, being able to participate in civic life. And to the 
extent that our schools still currently aren't designed to really promote that kind of agency or to promote those kinds of skills, we find our schools are still struggling to matter uh, increasingly in a kind of knowledge uh, tech-driven uh, society. I mean, I, I've seen you, uh, I saw a couple of TED Talks and listened to a couple of podcasts that you've, that you've done, and you've talked about the idea that Dewey wrote about 100 years ago that, you know, school really isn't about real life, that there's this disconnect between what we do in classrooms and what we do in our real lives in the world. And yet, you know, schools have brought in more technology, obviously, but I, th- I like the quote where you also said, it's not so much the acquisition of technology, but the design of instruction and a curriculum that really allows students to engage in deep, high quality learning. Why do you think that's such a struggle for schools? Is it just that they don't want to give kids that power, that agency? Because really, that's what we're talking about, right? We're, we're talking about having agency over, right. over what we learn and, and how we learn it. I mean, I'll base my answer to that. It's a great question. I'll base my response to that question um, on the ethnographic research that, that I did along with a, a team of researchers that I had uh, where we spent about a year and a half in high school. And let me say first and foremost that, that my experience uh, in that situation and just my conversations with teachers and other educators is that more often than not, they are wholly committed to our students, you know, the teaching profession, is something that we need to continue to 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 respect and support, and so I think they are they are they are trying to um, to make a difference, uh, but but yet and still the circumstances in which they're trying to make that difference oftentimes don't support the kinds of outcomes that we would like to see. I mean, what we've seen over the last twenty five to thirty years or so is what I would call in our schools a technology arms race, and what I mean by that is there's been this intense pressure to acquire the latest and greatest, shiniest new tool. Right. Computers back in the day, later the internet, smart boards, tablets, smartphones, software, you name it, right? And, and you look at Google and you look at Apple and, and they're in sort of an, in an epic race to essentially establish uh, you know, some type of strong presence you know, in, our, in our schools. And what we've come to understand you know, to, to, your, to, to your question is, how we have thought about digital equity over the years and digital learning over the years, I think continues to evolve. The really easy solution is just the acquisition of the hardware and the software. That's relatively easy, right? Once you're able to summon up or generate the funds to do that, but that doesn't necessarily lead to the kinds of learning outcomes. It doesn't lead to the cultivation of the kinds of skills that young people need as they navigate the sort of knowledge-driven economy. And so to your question, what we, I think what we've come to learn now is that at best, the acquisition of the hardware and the software at best is, is about 50% of the problem. And it may even be less than that now. And, and the real challenge though is designing learning opportunities, designing curriculum that, that enables young students to develop the skills and the techniques to then leverage that technology in novel and important ways, right? So using that technology to be able to solve problems, using that technology to be able to pursue the answer to to challenging questions or uncharted problems. And those are the things, right, that we haven't really sort of created in our schools. And so what we have is this phenomenon that I like to call, and others have, have noted this as well, 
is uh, schools that are technology rich, but curriculum poor. And so what I oftentimes argue now is that there should be less of an emphasis on the acquisition of hardware and software, and really more on the sort of cultivation and enrichment of learning and curriculum that really helps students cultivate uh, the future ready skills that I think are really important in today's world. So a couple things come up from that, right? The first is it's really hard to rewrite curriculum. I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, in a lot of schools, we have a, a pretty much packaged curriculum that teachers are trying to cover um, more than anything else rather than, than create it. So the first question I'd have is, should we be thinking about a co-creation with kids when it comes to this in terms of as we develop curriculum? I mean, should they be an integral part in what the curriculum becomes because of the ways in which they can inform the, the things that they need to be able to do and learn and all those types of things? Yeah, I think a, a case can certainly be made for um, instances where co-designing the curriculum uh, is an effective approach. And, and you get all kinds of positives from that, right? You, you likely get more buy-in from students. Uh, they feel more connected uh, to the learning experience if, they, if they've had an opportunity to help to shape that. They're able to bring their expertise, their interest into the classroom. And we know, right, that when you can create environments like that, that's a powerful source of agency, a powerful source of motivation uh, that allows kids to begin to, you know, participate in the regulation of their own learning uh, and the quality of that learning. And so absolutely, I think there are instances where that kind of co-design model uh, can be really effective uh, and can elicit some really interesting outcomes. And then I guess the second question I would have is, what is the responsibility of the educator then to be able to model the uses of these technologies in the ways that we're talking about, right? I mean, is it incumbent upon us now to be able to create and connect and tell stories using technology and, and participate in these types of larger real world agendas or movements or whatever else? Yeah, I think to the extent that, that, that teachers can bring those kinds of skills that kind of expertise into the into the classroom, that it certainly positions them in a way to be a, a much more e effective instructor. You know, they, they can in fact model some of these behaviors, but that I don't think is necessarily a requirement. You know, I think that the, the real opportunity or the real challenge, right, is building uh, learning experiences that allow students to, uh, you know, cultivate critical thinking skills that allows students to you know, think critically about information, to think critically about data, to use data to tell stories or to interpret and understand the world. Um, and that doesn't always require using technology per se. You know, what, what, what we learned in our field work, right, is that a lot of schools and educators tend to equate the mere presence of advanced technology with advanced forms of learning. And, and I don't think that technology is necessarily a, an absolute requirement uh, to um, you know, create a space or to create an environment where rich, dynamic, and meaningful learning can happen. I mean, you know, you have you know, entrepreneurs and innovators you know, who are oftentimes sketching or drawing or using whiteboards or using paper and using pencil as a way to visualize and communicate their ideas or, their, or the concepts they want to try to pursue and bring into the world. And so the point is, right, it's, it's, you know, being able to model some of those things via technology, I think is good, but it's not an essential requirement. And it's really about modeling the process of thinking, uh, the process of iteration, 
the, the process of prototyping and sort of bringing ideas into the world and the process that um, sort of facilitates that happening. And I think those are the things that teachers can both model, but also create a space for the students to experiment with um, and also experience. You're talking about design and design thinking and the design process there, which a lot of schools are beginning to employ in terms of opportunities for kids to innovate and to create in classrooms. In your experience, and when you go and, and visit schools or in the research that you've done, does design need to be cultural within a school? Does there need to be like an innovative culture to support that type of work? Or, or can it be just kind of in classrooms? Because my sense of it is that it depends on what teacher you get, right? What classroom you're in when it comes to those types of opportunities. So are you thinking when we talk about design in schools or design thinking in schools, should we be thinking about it culturally? And if you mean by culturally, if you mean it's something that sort of pervades the entire- Right, right, yeah, right. Across the conversations that we right. have about classroom practice, yeah. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I think that's, that's critical. And, and, and you know, when I, I mean, I know there's, I mean, there's some, there's some people, right, who are becoming a, a little bit critical of design thinking and the idea, right, that it's, it's like the, the new thing or it's not that new now right. as far as design thinking and education. People have been experimenting with these ideas for, for a while now. But, but it's beginning to become more and more, um, I think, um, it's more, more and more kind of spread out through the education system and you see more and more people adopting it, so to speak. I mean, what, what, I, what I think is important about design thinking, right, is that it, 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 it in some ways inculcates this, this notion of, of innovation. And what I advocate and what I like, right, is, is when I think of a designer, I think of someone who looks out at the world and doesn't see the world as it currently exists, but rather as the world could be. And design thinking becomes the, the means or the process of the journey through which you go about making that envisioned world more material, more realistic. Uh, and in that sense, right, this idea of being able to translate a vision, translate an idea into something tangible, into something expressed, into something that you can actually see, uh, and that sort of matters in the world in some manifest way. And, and I think that, you know, equipping skill, and that's a disposition as well, right? right. I mean, it's this ability to not only imagine a world that you think should exist, a more equitable world, a more just world, a more sustainable world, but figuring out a way to help make that world a reality. And, and that's, that's a sense of agency, that's a, that's a way of thinking about the world, that's a way of being in the world, that's a way of practicing certain skills in the world. And so that's, that's what I like about design thinking. Um, and I think that if, if schools could begin to cultivate an environment and experience a set of values and expectations that encourage kids to see themselves, right, as designers, that is to see themselves as agents of change, as people who can make a difference. And that's a very powerful, I think, approach to thinking about what education could, should be and what, what students could experience in the context of schooling. Which, which leads to a question about how do we assess that, right? How do we know that our kids are those things, that they're developing those dispositions and those skills? Do you, do you think there's a different conversation we have to be having too about assessment then? Uh, yeah, and, and, that, and that gets a little tricky, but, but, but absolutely. Just, just a little? Just a little tricky. Um, I mean, because what it requires, right, is that you're, if you're asking students to think differently, if you're asking students to behave differently, if you're asking students to demonstrate mastery in ways that are quite different, then how you assess that, how you measure that, um, you know, likely requires um, some, some major rethinking as well. 
And I think there are people out there who are who are sophisticated enough to help us get there, to help us think about this. Right? There there are instruments out there, you know, designed to measure um, students' um, sense of self, their sense of efficacy. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, particularly in the informal learning spaces now. I mean, you see more and more educators, more and more innovators, more and more entrepreneurs bringing those kinds of you know intentions into their educational setting. And, and trying to create environments similar to the one that you and I are discussing here. And so, and so what you do is, I mean, you don't necessarily give students like a test or students don't write a, a common research paper. Students create something, they build something, they propose something. Um, you know, it could be a policy, it could be um, a, a, a prototype of some sort. Uh, it could be a new strategy. Uh, it could be a story or some kind of digital artifact. I mean, there, there, there are different ways in which, you know, one could go through a, a journey of, of inquiry, exploration, ideation, and, and creation that you could then measure sort of each of those steps along the way to see how students are, are, are progressing towards or developing and cultivating uh, skills uh, that demonstrate, uh, you know, these, these, these forms of, of, of competency. Uh, but I think it's really sort of valuing just the range of, of things that kids can create, the range of, of artifacts that they can, uh, can, can, can craft and produce. And then um, how do you sort of design techniques that allow you to measure their ability to sort of translate ideas, to translate information, insight, data, whatever the, whatever the raw materials they are using to, to create that artifact, how that reflects deep thinking, how that reflects analyses, how that reflects being able to, to interpret and communicate. Um, I mean, I think those are obviously right, really important skills uh, in the world and the economy that we live in today. So in your, in your book, you talk a lot about how these technologies and how this moment really does give more power to all of us in, in different ways, but also to underserved kids who may not be in schools where they have a lot of technology or where they're thinking about design thinking. Can you talk a little bit about how these technologies and how the use of these technologies to create and connect empowers kids from all different levels and maybe allows kids to do things on their own that their schools aren't giving them the potential to do? Yeah, so, so this is something that, we, we, that I've seen sort of firsthand in terms of the field work that I've been doing over the last few years or so. And so basically what I was able to observe was, for example, amongst um, young people who come from what we might call resource uh, constrained um, homes and schools, um, these were oftentimes, you know, Latino or African-American students, you know, students from immigrant households. And historically, right, those students have been um, sort of defined as um, kind of on the wrong side of the so-called digital divide, right? This idea of the technology rich versus the technology poor, the tech has versus the tech have nots. And, and, and things have changed significantly over the last decade or so uh, in terms of how we might think about digital inequality, how we might think about the digital divide, and more specifically, how we might think about uh, kids who find themselves in the social and economic margins of society. And so what we, what we begin to, to, to notice is you know, how young Latino and African-American kids were using technology uh, in some ways that, um, that suggested ingenuity, uh, that suggested the ability to sort of navigate uh, precarious circumstances that may be intermittent internet access at home, uh, that may be 
a lack of a, a well-developed curriculum at school that allows them to use the technology in meaningful ways. And what we saw these students doing right in, in an after-school setting, in an informal setting, be it the exchange of different kinds of technologies that they had access to, smartphones, tablets, iPods, you name it. Uh, these students were just very creative, not only in terms of their determination to get access to technology, right, working with teachers to borrow laptops or to borrow software, but, but also in, in their, their attitude for learning and their, their desire to pursue the kinds of creative expressions uh, and aspirations that they had, you know, creating content, telling stories through film, music, uh, interactive media, digital games, for example. These students were using informal networks, they were using uh, connected technology, uh, you know, online video tutorials, for example, using peer expertise. I mean, it was just a range of resources that they were tapping into that empowered their aspirations to be the architects of their own kind of information and digital environment. And we saw as a result of that, and we write about this in, 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 my, in my book, The Digital Edge, what we saw, right, were, were kids who were incredibly resilient, incredibly, incredibly resourceful in terms of how they were navigating uncertainty and inequality and still trying to assert some degree of agency in the digital world. To what extent is that fueled by passion, right? Because my sense of it would be that the reason they're resilient is because they want to create something that matters to them. They have a a real desire to attack a problem or to create something that's beautiful in, in whatever context the beautiful takes in that instance. So is it is it about passion? I mean, does, does passion and these the access to these technologies, is that where a lot of those kids find their power now? I think so, right? It's through passion, it's through the, 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 the social networks that they're embedded in. Uh, in this case, it was a combination of uh, face-to-face -face or, or physical world uh, social networks, their peers, for example, were sources of inspiration. Um, and so watching their peers create content or watching their peers figure out how to create content, a music video, a song, you know, again, some type of digital artifact of some sort. But then they also live in this broader world, this broader world of connectivity, uh, where they're able to, uh, you know, connect to other peers and to other networks uh, via the computer-mediated world, through social media. Um, and through the, through, through the online world. Um, and so these were all resources that they were tapping to draw, you know, to sort of draw inspiration that sort of fuel their own aspirations. So there's, there's this kind of social contagion, right? Where, where young kids, you know, Latino kids, African-American kids, seeing other young people look like them, who share similar aspirations, maybe similar circumstances, uh, you know, sort of finding their niche, finding their way, finding their pathway towards uh, being able to pursue these interests in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's credible, uh, and in a way that in many respects, I think is incredibly empowering. So you talk a lot about kind of the future of work and the work environment that kids are entering, uh, a lot about the gig economy and, and the hustle. How do we prepare kids for that? I mean, how do we get them ready for a work environment where potentially it's not just going to be your nine to five, if that even exists anymore, but yeah. it's also going to be uh, your passion project over here that you're trying to make some money on or this other kind of collaborative thing that you're working on in a workspace somewhere with a bunch of programmers or whatever else. I mean, is there a way that we can begin to develop kids ability to embrace that type of more uncertain work environment or should we be doing that? We absolutely should because, because they're embracing it, even if our institutions, for example, if, even if our schools aren't embracing it. 
Um, and that's really what the story of, of my book, Don't Knock the Hustle, is about, right? Is, is about the ways in which young people, what I call young creatives, how, how in some ways, right, in the context of a precarious economy, the gig economy, um, how they are in some ways um, establishing a new blueprint for how we might think about the future of work and what the future of work might look like. Work that's itinerant, uh, work that um, you know, is flexible, uh, work that is uncertain, which, which means that you, um, that one of the, the, the absolute important skills is being able to uh, you know, create your own gig or uh, to uh, pursue your own aspirations, right? Via the side hustle. Uh, you know, what, a lot of what I learned about through doing research for, uh, for the book, Don't Knock the Hustle, was this whole kind of side hustle economy uh, that young people find themselves immersed in, which requires them, right, to be flexible, which requires them to be able to learn things on demand, which requires them to be able to, uh, you know, cultivate social capital, that is to say, connections to other people, to develop those relationships that allow them to cobble together resources and expertise and knowledge and talent that they may not have, but then collaboratively together, you know, they could pursue a civic aspiration. They could pursue a creative aspiration or an entrepreneurial aspiration. Um, and so I, I think, you know, those skills are, abs those, are, those, are those are the skills of, of, of the future, the skills of tomorrow, really the skills of today. Um, and and what I, the reason I wanted to write that book is because I wanted to understand if our schools aren't preparing kids for this precarious economy, this gig economy, where do they go to learn the things that they need to know in order to navigate that world? Uh, and so the book is really about how they're turning to each other, how they're leveraging technology, how they're building social networks, how they're finding um, um, you know, novel and un un unexpected uh, places, a co-working space, a coffee shop, an apartment, a laptop, you know, all kinds of spaces to, to sort of come together and to pursue their own creative hustle, their own creative aspirations. Um, and that's about grit. Uh, you know, that's about the ability to connect to others. That's about the ability to find the information that you need to know in order to do the things that you want to do. Um, and, and those are skills that, that are becoming absolutely critical and those are skills that you, you could argue that, that as they're currently constituted, schools simply just aren't designed in any real way to help young people develop. Is it going to require a redesign, do you think? Or can we, can we fit that in in places? Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, too, is that, you know, the world is much more uncertain and ambiguous and all those types of things. And should we create environments that are more uncertain and ambiguous within reason, right? We don't want right. to put kids, we don't want to stress them out or, or yeah. make, make them anxious. But certainly, we talk a lot about how predictable school is. And yet, you're talking about a very unpredictable world that they're going to be looking at. So it, is it a redesign of school? Or is it kind of we can, you know, do little things in little ways that maybe prepare them better for that? In an ideal world, I would say it's, it's an absolute redesign, if not overhaul, of what school should look like. But we, we've played that game for over a century, right? Yes, we have. How slow, quote unquote, re reform is. Right. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, those are probably our best last chances to at least get this thing going in that direction. The idea that next year, right, our schools would look completely different, uh, they would be designed differently, that learning would look very different, assessment would be very different, that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen next year, the five years, and maybe likely even 10, 15 years from now, in terms of that kind of substantial overhaul. But if you can begin to start inserting within the context of the current framework, 
opportunities for students to experience that, you know, courses that in some ways are intended to sort of simulate that world that allow them to begin to start uh, practicing those skills, um, then I think that's at least something, right, as opposed to what we, what we for the most part have today, which is virtually nothing uh, in terms of helping young students grapple with that. I mean, I mean what, what I hear oftentimes, right, when we were doing our field work, and this is still fairly common, is educators oftentimes say, well, you know, our job is to make sure that our students are college ready or, or career ready. And I walked, when I was, as I started thinking about that in those conversations, I began to start asking myself, what does it mean, for example, to be career ready in a world that young people are transitioning into where the notion of career, as we have understood it historically, no longer exists? And so uh, just, just by virtue of that framework and that mindset alone, this idea of career readiness, when the idea of a career no longer exists, suggests right, that the schools are just basically outmatched with the world of reality and that they aren't preparing students to sort of enter into that world with any degree of sophistication, with any real expectations about what their careers will look like. So we know, for example, right, that, that most young people transitioning to work today will have many different jobs, right? We'll have many different quote unquote careers. This idea of working for one company for 15, 20, 30 years or, or an entire lifetime throughout the course of one's uh, you know, working life, that no longer exists, right? That hasn't existed for the last 15 to 20 years or so for more and more people. Um, and yet uh, our schools are still predicated on this notion that that's the kind of economy that kids are transitioning into uh, when they leave the four walls of the school. And it's just simply uh, not adequate and it's simply um, you know, unresponsive uh, to the real world that kids are entering into. Yeah, and I think that part of it is, and, and I've seen it in schools too, where there are, there are new opportunities for kids to develop these types of dispositions to be in more uncertain environments. But what it really requires too, you, you know, as you said, 5, 10, 15 years, it requires a longer term vision that is reimagining the, the current structure and systems of schools and, and the practices that we have in classrooms. And I understand, right, that as much as I, I sort of subscribe to the view that you know, helping young kids to develop at least the, the, the disposition that maybe at some point in my working adult life, you know, I might need to figure out how to create a job, right? I may need to figure out how to get my hustle on, you know, as, as they say. Um, and how do I do that in a way, right, that can sustain me and a family? Um, how can I do that in a way that, that is personally rewarding and fulfilling? Because what I learned, right, is that for, for a lot of young people, the side hustle isn't necessarily about wanting to pursue wealth or, or celebrity, um, but really it's about pursuing dignity and opportunity. You know, if in jobs that people are entering into don't really offer them much in terms of opportunity for mobility, uh, you know, I think more and more of them are saying, well, maybe I can just, maybe I need to create my own experience or I need to create my own opportunity or find, you know, a passion project or, or find a pursuit in which I can get some degree of personal satisfaction, meaning and dignity out of that. Uh, if in fact, the, the sort of occupational world, the formal occupational world no longer offers me that or offers me that in a way that's sustainable. And I mean, if that's a shift away from, as you said, wealth and celebrity being the way that we perceive our power to opportunity and dignity being the way that we perceive our power, that's a, that's a very, very important shift that will play out in some interesting ways. I mean, what do you see happening in the next 5, 10, 15 years in terms of, of the millennials, not only the millennials, but the kids coming up and, and just the evolution of, of what's happening right now? I, I mean, I think they are already redefining really the terms of what success looks like 
I think they're already redefining the terms of what um, you know work looks like and what opportunity looks like and what mobility looks like. And you know, if a generation or two ago, you know, that was um, you know a, a, a long-term job, uh, you know, owning a home and a car, uh, you know, those those kinds of things were were those kind of signs of, of material possessions were a reflection of dignity or, or, or were a reflection of success. I think they're sort of redefining those terms and so for them success is less about the material and it's really more about the, um, you know, the, 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 the spiritual, the, the mental, uh, the civic, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, what I would hear is this common mantra that, you know, that, that, we, that we hear frequently today is doing well by doing good. And so there's, there's this sense that rather than just simply pursuing, you know, wealth or pursuing, um, you know, economic power, I'm really interested in investing my life and investing my talents into uh, producing social good, right? And that's, and that's a kind of a collective power. Uh, and I think that's something that we're seeing more and more of today. Um, and it's reflected, right, in the fact that, that you know, they, they may not own homes in, in the way that, um, or by the time that, that they turn 30 or, or 32 compared to previous generations. Um, we see that they're less likely to own, you know, automobiles, for example. I mean, again, all of those sort of indicators of what success may have looked like a generation or two ago uh, seem to be kind of uh, being pushed aside. And I think other indicators are becoming uh, more and more a sign of success, more and more a sign of, of deriving benefit uh, and reward from life, uh, being a, a, a citizen in, in your community. Uh, you know, contributing to the social good, uh, you know, pursuing a passion project or pursuing a civic or entrepreneurial or creative aspiration that brings you personal satisfaction and joy may not, may, may not bring you riches, but it brings you other things, right, that, that, that perhaps can sustain you uh, as well. Well, no question, we live in a, a pretty fascinating moment with a lot of change that's happening and a lot of uncertainty moving forward. But uh, Craig, I really appreciate you taking some time this afternoon to give us your thoughts on that and uh, sincere best wishes in your work moving forward. Thank you and continued success with the, uh, with the podcast. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks very much. So what can you do now after listening to Craig's thoughts about how power is changing in the world right now? Well, here are three suggestions for you. First, ask your students what they think about the power that new mobile technologies are bringing to them. Find out what they're creating and how they're using technology to change the world or their communities. Second, do an audit of how you yourself use technology to amplify your personal power in the world. What might you need to learn more about? And finally, pick up Craig's book, Don't Knock the Hustle, if you want a ton of stories about how young adults are rewriting the narrative of learning and work. Next week, I'll be back with installment number four in our month-long look at power, and I'll be interviewing Simon Fraser University professor Yuslam Sensoy around creating school cultures where social justice is at the center. Until then, have a great week, everyone, and thanks again for listening.